all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, an associate professor of preventive medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app. Good morning and welcome to Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of internal medicine and pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. And this is Southern Remedy from MPB Think Radio. This is the program that addresses your calls about any kind of healthcare topic that you would like to discuss. And uh, on Wednesday, we pretty much opening up the lines to anything and topics. That could be a new medication. Maybe it's something you don't understand about a diagnosis. Maybe it's just something you're curious about that has to do with the medical treatment of yourself or the health of yourself or someone else that's near and dear to you, you can always email us. That email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. Got lots of good weather out there. Hope everybody is enjoying that and uh, getting out and uh, uh, outside a little bit. If you are like myself, you may notice I have a little bit of a scratchy throat today. That's from those seasonal allergies. That's right. I'm hitting it hard with my usual regimen, but uh, no runny nose today. But uh, I am certainly just a little bit scratchy. But uh, that's what we deal with living here in the South when we got lots of uh, pollen counts that get way up during this time of year. So I hope everybody's taking precautions for that and treating that uh, if you're like me. Let's go to our first caller. We've got Jean on the line from Raymond. Good morning, Jean. Hey, good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Uh, I used to get <clears throat> migraine headaches with auras, and then after menopause, they guess, I guess it was hormonal. They I didn't get any, but now in the last week, I get one every day, and just without the headache, I go with just some dizziness. I've gone to my ophthalmologist, and he checked my eyes. He says, it's not my eyes. It's probably something in my brain. And I'm wondering, is there what I should be doing about this? Is something I should worry about? Yeah, that's a good question. If you don't mind my asking, how old are you? I'm going to be 68 in a couple weeks. Okay. So migraines, is, as a lot of people know, are one of the most common types of headaches. We don't fully understand all the mechanisms that trigger those, but we do know that in some people that can be a lifelong thing. It tends to run in families, so if somebody else in the family has uh, migraine headaches, you're a little bit more at risk for it. But it is um, definitely has to do with the chemicals that nerves uh, sort of sense pain and then the, the vasculature or the um, the amount of blood flow going to them. And um, they're fairly typical. I know, Gene, you, you know fully about this, but for those who are listening and may not know fully about migraine headaches, not every headache's a migraine, um, but um, they typically tend to be on one side of the face or head, 
And um, usually that's pretty typical for each individual. Um, they can be triggered by a number of things. Now, a lot of things are things we ingest, like MSG, which is a uh, preservative that's in a lot of foods that can trigger it for some people, not everybody. Uh, sometimes things like chocolate, wine, aged cheeses, um, lots of different things that can trigger that. It can be, um, you know, overexertion, underhydration. Uh, lots of things like that. Caffeine can even trigger it in some some instances. But whatever the trigger, typically they will start in age uh, below the age of 50. If you're over the age of 50 and your initial migraine comes up then, that's sort of a, one of the red flags. Or if it's an atypical thing. Some, some people have what's called an aura where they um, they experience certain symptoms that go along with the headaches that tell them they're about to get it. And this can be flashing lights. It can be certain smells. It can be just a change in vision. So that is fairly common. Now, after menopause is one of those those time periods where the character and the intensity can change. And they can either go away or they can become worse. And so that's not too atypical. What I would say is atypical is they've come back a little bit and you've experienced some dizziness with those. And um, before you go much further, because they sort of got better through menopause, I can't think of a reason why, unless there's just been a big trigger during the last couple of weeks, um, that they would get worse like that. I would probably give it about another week. I would be sure that you don't have other warning signs like fever, a stiff neck, um, it's certainly you can have visual changes with migraine, so that's not too atypical. But if you had weakness or numbness in your hands or your feet uh, that's only on one side of the body or, or one arm or one leg, those would all be warning signs to get this looked at a little bit quicker. Or if the usual things that you use to treat migraine headaches in the past aren't working. And sometimes they can be sort of nondescript medications like Tylenol or Excedrin or ibuprofen, but there are specific medications that are very good at aborting migraines. In other words, when you have them, you take these to get rid of them. And those are the <clears throat> like the triptans, like Maxalt's one of them or, or medications like that. But uh, Gina, in your case, I would say if, you know, if it's if it's getting more severe with sort of these different symptoms, it probably would be a good idea to go and, and just let your regular doctor or if you have a neurologist, that would be the, the person that could really determine whether you need further testing um, with some of those red flags. Okay, so blood pressure has nothing to do with any of this. Yeah, blood pressure Blood pressure is one of those things that is sort of a chicken or the egg thing. So blood pressure doesn't necessarily cause migraines. It can cause a headache if it's high enough. But if you're having a headache and you're experiencing pain for any reason, most of the time your blood pressure is going to be elevated. So I don't use it as a litmus test to say, okay, well, that's a, that's a red flag. Um, now, certainly you could have an elevation in your blood pressure that causes a regular headache that sort of mimics a migraine, but those are sort of two different things. Well, if anything, my blood pressure has been dropping, not going up with this. Yeah, that, yeah that shouldn't, shouldn't in and of itself, you know, be associated with the migraine. All right. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. Yes, ma'am. Thank you for calling. Let's go to Paula in Mobile. Good morning, Paula. Hi, Dr. Jimmy. Um, a question for you. Um, 
I'm older. I'm 71, and I've had um, many years of gastric problems. Um, sort of, you know, um, never really completely diagnosed. Crohn's, um, definitely, um, and getting more miserable as time goes on. So I decided to kind of research the thing myself. I'm an old retired nurse, and I thought, let me just put in as much information as I can and see if I come up with a puzzle that I can solve. Sure. So the one thing I thought, final thing that I'm going to give a try here is gluten. And it's been four months, and my life has changed dramatically. So I guess, you know, I feel just a little disappointed that all the really great folks I went to never pulled blood, never examined the villi close enough. I'm wondering, is that something the medical community sort of just doesn't believe in? Or, you know, maybe do you see this in kids, perhaps? Yeah. I just sort of look back on all this, and, and I just I feel like I suffered an awful lot when maybe I didn't need to. Yeah, this is this is one of those conditions that sort of emerged in the last, oh, I'd say about ten or fifteen years, um, right. and it's it's turned out to be much more common than we thought. And there's two different types of gluten interaction. One right. is a gluten sensitivity, and one is an, a gluten allergy. The gluten yeah, allergy, I don't have celiac. No. Right, right, and that's that's where I was going with that. So the gluten yeah. sensitivities, um, it's really it is hard sometimes, and certainly you can pick up on it. It sounds like you have studied this. And, and know some of the, the subtle ways of doing things, having the flattening of the villi if you have a colonoscopy or uh, if you have a biopsy with that or some of the some of the blood tests you can get. But it really it does come down to sort of a process of elimination and you at least need to think about it. Um, I would say, you know, in our training now, uh, this this is on board exams. It's on licensure exams. Um, I've, so, yeah, it's it's definitely something that's been out there. But if you've been in, you know, if, if physicians have been in practice, oh, 20 plus years, like when I first started, this was not well known. Um, right. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, I can yeah. remember uh, there was a good friend of my my youngest son who is 19 now. And um, one of his good friends uh, growing up was diagnosed, at least in elementary school, it may have been earlier than that, with um, with a gluten allergy. And uh, that was that was pretty well known at that time, or at least sort of emerging. But yeah, thankfully, you know, this is medicine. That's this is sort of what we do. We study things, and then when new things come up, that's when we sort of jump on it. And looking back, you know, it is like, well, why, why didn't we know that in the past? Well, we just didn't have all the information. And then, of course... With the ongoing, um, you know, um, with the ongoing medical community, with the training and everything, it does take some time for that to get out there. Most most specialties now, though, in maintenance of certification, that's sort of the general uh, term about what physicians have to do to maintain their board certification. Uh, Right. Yeah. So so most of the time, it's in there. I'm sorry. Go ahead. What, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, what about some of your babies when you're treating them and your little fellas? Do you ever sort of, uh, you know, look at that and sort of you've tried to put it all together? And, and has that been something that you've seen in your little guys? Oh, yeah. In yeah. Treatment? In pediatrics. Yeah. yeah. In pediatrics and adult medicine, both both of those categories, it's, you know, been been seen. And I've, I've had some patients in clinic that either in conjunction with other specialists we've treated them, either with the allergist or with the pediatric GI uh, physicians, 
um, they've gotten that diagnosis or we've, you know, done it ourselves. So, yeah, it's it's and it is a little bit easier um, to test for that and to think about it. So, yeah, it, mm-hmm. particularly in well, the last make, five years. Well, I'm going to make one last comment and hang up and let other nice folks talk to you. But my crying has gotten decidedly better. I have mm-hmm. I've been able to go off medicine. I'm bleeding a lot less. The pain is much more manageable. And I've been able to gain about seven or eight pounds that I needed to gain. And um, just, again, life-changing. So, yeah, I was interested in asking you what you thought, and I appreciate your opinion on everything. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. Thanks for calling, Paula. We do appreciate it. This is Southern Remedy. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning answering your questions about your health care or the health care of somebody close to you. We're going to go to Carlton from Tupelo. Good morning, Carlton. Hey, good morning. Yeah, thanks for taking the call, doctor. Love your show. Sure, thank you. Um, yeah, and I'm pleasantly surprised I had a question. The um, I have a medication I take. I I would I describe it to my friends as mild. It costs less than ten dollars uh, from Kroger Pharmacy. But when I tried to transfer it recently for convenience, uh, I was informed it was a class three controlled substance, um, and that kind of rang my bell. Uh, I I googled it, but I didn't I didn't really understand. What's a class three controlled substance? Yeah, so that's a classification, and there's one through four, and the lower the number there, the the one actually it's a Roman numeral is the, mo- the way it's mostly written, uh, and one and two have higher levels of addiction potential. In other words, they are either have narcotic substances or things that could be addictive, uh, even if they aren't, uh, you know, opioids or, or other nar- narcotics, but Level three has a low to moderate level of addiction potential. So it's and a good example of that. I'm not sure exactly what your medication is, but like Tylenol with codeine. So that's one that um, has a low to moderate level of addiction potential. A level two uh, would have a higher level of addiction potential. And most physicians who pres- who can prescribe that, you actually have to, to have a separate authorization to do that. Um, and most physicians who do that, um, they can prescribe, you know, two through four or, or two and three are the, the most common. But it's just a classification system that's standardized um, according to how much of the addictive component of that it has in it. Um, and when all, you know, possible, use the lowest one. So three would be pretty, pretty low on that classification scheme. And certainly if it was a short-term acting medication, that's, that's much less to be, you know, to have that addiction potential. But that's, that's what it is. It's very useful for comparing different medications and different classes like that. But when you transfer that to another pharmacy, a lot of times the pharmacies will just talk to one another if you're going, say, from Kroger to Walgreens. Um, but in this case, you have to get authorization from whoever printed that um, or whoever at least sent that, wrote that, that uh, it's old terminology. Now we do most of these electronically. But whoever prescribed that to begin with, you'd have to get authorization for them. And that is tracked, too, so that you don't have, you know, some, you know, some, some people might uh, go from pharmacy to pharmacy to pharmacy and try to get it filled. But that's, that's one of the sort of the safety precautions to try to do that. But it is a, a bit of a hurdle. You're right to do that. But basically, you just they would just need to contact the physician who prescribed it. Or you could do that and just say, hey, I'm changing pharmacies. Do you mind if I do this? 
Well, thanks so much. That answers all my questions. Good to know. All right. Thank you, Carlton. We do appreciate your call. We're going to Caroline on the road. Good morning, Caroline. Hi. What's your question this morning? I listened to an NPR uh, report about HIV, and I fell in that category. So uh-huh. I made a point with a cardiologist, had an ECG. I do have chest pains from time to time, but I ignore them. And um, so I'm on a heart monitor. And mm-hmm. the other day, I had some significant um, pain and a couple of almost painting cells uh, just for a few seconds, you know. So I hit the button. Anyway, I got the report from the ECG, uh, ECG today, and it said I have possible uh, damage. And so my question to you is this. I'm scheduled for a stress test in a couple of weeks, but mm-hmm. given the fact that I've got this history, I've got a family history as well, should I just call and say, look, <laughs> let's expedite that stress test? Yeah, now the heart monitor usually... I know you get the information. Is that one that they prescribe, like a Zeo patch or or something like that, or a Holter monitor, or is that something that you're picking up on your like your uh, wearable, like a watch? No, they they uh, put it on me. It's a little okay. Yeah, they they should get that information themselves. Like a cardiologist should review that. So you might want to check with them first and say, Hey, did you review that? And did it? Was it truly something that you're interested, you know, that that did come up that way? The the computer algorithms will report out, and this is for an EKG, too. A lot of times patients will say, hey, I looked at my EKG report. Why does it say that I had a heart attack in the lower portion of my heart? The algorithm actually overcalls things, and it's up to to the cardiologist to go back and look at those and say, Okay, this is this is not true. You don't you didn't have an, an uh, you know a damage to the lower part of your heart, so it may be overcalling it. But I don't want you to blow it off. You probably should contact the cardiologist or whoever you know prescribed that to to place that that clinic and say, hey, did y'all see anything that we need to expedite the next step in testing? And a, and a stress test would be the next thing to do for that because. Right. Really, the only thing you're picking up with the heart monitors or an EKG is the electrical activity, right? So it's just one uh-huh. portion of it, and it's an indirect um, indicator of of something that's damaged or something that's abnormal. So it doesn't tell you the whole story. And depending on what type of stress test that you're getting, they would be able to localize decreased blood flow in your heart and sometimes function of your heart at the same time. Right. Are they going to do a meta... A, uh, not, uh, they're not going to put me on a treadmill because I have a bad knee. Yeah. So it's a uh, clinical... What, are you, what do they call it? But he's in drugs. <laughs> yeah, there's a couple of different ways to do it. And, you know, treadmill used to be the, the only way, really. But what we know now is in people who can't walk, who can't, are not going to be able to get their heart rate up to the the heart rate speeds that sort of, you know, uh-huh. decrease blood flow in the heart and sort of stress it a little bit. Right. Or in women, for that matter, because women don't tend not to be, it's not a, a, the best test for women a lot of the times. There are some exceptions to that. But uh, there's different types of medications that they can give you that either dilate the blood vessels in your heart, the arteries, or they um, speed up the heart rate a little bit. 
and they sort of create that same stressful situation that you're under when you're walking really fast or running. Um, so I, it just depends, though. And sometimes they combine that with an echocardiogram because that right. can show them different wall abnormality motions and then how, how functional your heart is in, in ejecting the blood that, that's uh, coming into it. Right. Okay. Well, thank you very much. I'll go ahead and give them a call. That's what I suspected, but I just wanted a second opinion. Yeah, absolutely. Let's go to uh, Dave next, who has been holding from Flowood. Good morning, Dave. Good morning. Thank you all for doing what you do. Got a couple of quick questions for you. Sure. Recently diagnosed with Renault's in my left hand. I've always mm-hmm. had my index finger cold, uh, but now it's in my other three fingers. Uh, all this they think is due to me riding Harleys for the last 14 years and shifting about 900,000 times in 160,000 miles. So they put me on, I was already on Norvest, 5 milligrams, so they increased that to 10. Uh, they also put me on lisinopril at 5 milligrams, but uh, and that has seemed to help some. Is there anything else topical-wise or anything that you could think of that, that would help with that? And also, I'm having some, what is... My hand doctor said it's not related to this pain in my fingers, my wrist, and my lower palm to the point I can't call me pick anything up. Hmm. Yeah, for the, you know, Raynaud's, and I know you know this just to, just to make sure everybody else does. So it is a spasm of the blood vessels, usually in the extremities, and uh, the hands are very common. And you can either have one side or both sides, but it can be in other places in the body too. Sometimes people get it on their nose, on their earlobes. Uh, anywhere that the the body's exposed to cold temperatures, and uh, that's when it's worse, at least. A lot of people do have it in warmer temperatures. And it goes through three different phases as the blood supply cuts off or at least decreases to your extremities, to your the tips of your fingers. Uh, they can turn white, and then they turn blue, and then they turn red. They're sort of, it's a patriotic condition. Uh, so uh, the red is when the blood flow returns to those extremities. But it is very painful uh, because you're cutting off blood. Uh, you're reducing blood to that that extremity. And it, you can have this and have nothing else going on with you. Uh, or it can be associated with other autoimmune diseases. And calcium channel blockers with which uh, amlodipine or Norvast that you're on, uh, that they prescribed is one of the classes of medications that they use. Although they, um, you know, and it's sort of, if you already have hypertension, it's sort of good to, you can, you know, use it as one of the things that you treat so you don't have to add anything else. But a lot of times you, uh, that I will switch to Procardia XL. Um, Procardia okay. is a medication that is very similar to amlodipine, but it has been studied and it's, to me, it's just my opinion. A lot of times patients that don't respond to amlodipine uh, do respond to procardia, and it would have the same blood pressure effect that amlodipine would, but it tends to dilate blood vessels, so it keeps them from spasming down. The lisinopril doesn't do much too much, nor would it cause you to have worse symptoms. And really, because this is really the blood vessels that are on the inside of the skin, <clears throat> there's not really anything topical other than warming your hands up. Like if now, if you're going to continue to ride, particularly in cold weather, uh, even if you get good control with these medications, 
what you may want to do is, you know, invest in some, you know, some of these technical gloves that have the automatic warmers and things like that and keep your hands, you know, a little bit on the warmer side uh, to prevent it. But um, I've got a I've got a patient that has uh, Raynaud's. And when he does, you know, yard work in the in the winter months, even in Mississippi, he has to make sure that he's about September is when he starts wearing the gloves. So it's something that you have to think about. Okay. And as far as this pain goes, my hand doctor said the pain is not related. So carpal tunnel, rheumatoid, I mean, possibly. Yeah, particularly if you're not able to grip. Uh, they may want to look at that as a possible, you know, carpal tunnel or even even some a, a um, narrowing of where the other nerves in the hand uh, go, and that can be associated with sort of that wear and tear arthritis, which is not the same type of autoimmune arthritis like rheumatoid arthritis that you would see with with Raynaud's. Um, but yeah, that's that's probably a little bit separate issue. But um, and it may honestly, if you know, if you think about it, it may improve the Raynaud's, although I haven't seen this a lot. If you and, you know, it sort of makes sense if you're narrowing or you're damaging the nerves that go to the to your hand and that's causing the numbness and weakness, then uh, if you fix that, that might, you know, improve the Raynaud's, too. Not necessarily, but I mean, that's again, it's a nerve problem. That's where you're sending abnormal impulses to those arteries to say constrict down, which you want to do in cold weather anyway. It's just a little bit more than what you need. Okay. Who would you suggest I find for a carpal tunnel or arthritis diagnosis? What I, type doctor? Yeah, I'd go to a sports medicine doctor or a uh, orthopedic surgeon who is. Uh, they may have some further training in as a hand surgeon, orthopedic hand surgeon. Uh, and that's that's probably the first place that I would go. And you're you're here in Flowood. I'm assuming you're you're around here. Uh, you, at least you're right now in Flowood. Several different people in Jackson that can do that. And that should be pretty easy. Okay. Thank you so much for your help. Y'all keep doing what you're doing, helping people. We certainly appreciate it. Thank you, Dave. We do appreciate you calling. This is Southern Remedy. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning, answering your calls and questions about any kind of health care issue that you might be going through or curious about. Today is Administrative Professionals Day. So just wanted to make sure if you've got somebody like I do, I have a lot of people, you know, people forget like it's not just the doctor. It's not just the nurse. There are a lot of people on a healthcare team, whether that's an inpatient team or an outpatient team that do everything that they can to make your interaction uh, the best one. And I, I could not do what I do without my administrative uh, professionals. So thank you, thank you, thank you for what you do. It is unsung sometimes, uh, that, but they really do uh, support us in lots of different ways and contribute to the health of all of our patients. So hats off to every one of you if you're an administrative professional today, particularly in the healthcare field. Thank you, thank you for what you do. Let's go to Velma. Good morning, Velma. Good morning. Yes, sir. What you got going on? I uh, have a problem with my bowels. I've had it now for 50, uh, 50 months. Uh-huh. You know, and all the, all my doctors have just been treating it like I just had uh let, let me ask a couple of questions that may help us here. So is it like loose bowels, like diarrhea, or constipation? Well... They started treating it as constipation, mm-hmm. but it it wasn't it wasn't 
constipation. What it was, I had I had strained myself and strained it into a needle lab or something like that. It wasn't no pills. They went to giving me pills for all kinds of things, and none of it had worked. And they don't they don't want to believe what I told them about how I caused it. Yeah, and they're yeah. just treating it like it's something, and I can't get nobody to believe what I did that caused it. Gotcha. You know, one of the one of the things I, I might advise if you haven't, are you seeing a um, gastroenterologist, a GI doctor? Sure, I don't. I don't know what all I've seen. I've seen several doctors, and all of them, they don't listen to me when I tell them what what I did is what caused the whole situation, and I can't get nobody to. I, I just got a feeling that. But what I did didn't hurt, and it, it didn't didn't cause no blood or nothing like that. But they they trying to treat it like like pills are going. Yeah, I, it, let, let me let me sort of summarize where I would go with this. Uh, so right now, where you are, if the treatment that they are giving you is not working then I think you need to just go back and say, hey, can we start over and see if they can get a good diagnosis? Um, and it may That's require... Go ahead. They See, they hadn't told me what they called the, the diagnosis. It's just something I be, believe hadn't ever happened before because they, all the doctors I've seen, I asked them, did they, have you ever heard of something like that? And they all said no. Some of them smile or last about it, and I, I told them, I said, it's not funny, right. you know, but they, they just ain't doing what I feel like they could do to remedy it. Gotcha. I think think where you are right now, you might want to get a second opinion on that with a GI doctor. So those are the specialists with bowel issues. They may repeat some tests and and listen to you, you know, sort of tell the story of how this this started and where it's been since then. But it may be that long. It may be something that's a little bit different than what you think. But I think getting all the information to them and then having them sort of do some some testing a second opinion might give you that we because what by what you're telling me whatever they're doing right now with, with with whatever the diagnosis they think doesn't seem to be working so anytime you have a situation like that i think that's a good you know a good point to get a second opinion well i appreciate that i'll, I'll try to tell them again i i've told all these different doctors the same thing and they they all come around and add another pill to it. And it, what I what I did, it's not going to be no pill to to fix it. I promise you that. But I appreciate your help, and uh, I'll keep on trying because I believe somebody there's a doctor that can say, "Well, that's that's going to be an easy fix if, if you did." Did what you said you did, and it didn't hurt. It actually relieved me when I I strained to get that the stool out. 
Yeah. Yeah. That, and and if you'll tell them that, they may want to do some procedures or something like that to see, but it may be something different than what you think. But I've told them over and over, and they they just keep on coming around with something else. Yeah. Keep, I, I, get you a second opinion on that and see what see what they think. you have any idea who I could go to? I don't know. I would ask them for a GI doctor if you haven't already seen one. So that's the that's the specialist in that area. A GI. Right. Okay, Dr. Jim, I appreciate it. Yes, sir. Thank you for calling. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you. We're going to go to Bill from Oxford. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, sir. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. I have a, I have a couple of uh, pharmaceutical questions. Uh, one, um, my um, dermatologist uh, recommended a topical ointment um, called Eucrisa, okay? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, the, uh, uh, my insurance company wouldn't pay for it, and we got special permission. And my copay is uh, $600, and, and, you know, it's not a cancer drug after all. Right. I'm I'm astonished at that, and especially when we're not sure if it will actually work. You know, I've got these little um, um, discolorations of the skin below my knees uh, on both legs, just in the front of the shin, and she's not sure what it is. It, it could be, she said, blood splashes under the skin, and but didn't really know the cause. And maybe, maybe this will work, maybe it won't. But my question is, why is that so expensive? And there's another topical ointment that's in, that's in a generic, and that still costs $300 at um, um, one of the network pharmacies that, that I have. But, I mean, you know, what, what is the deal there? Yeah, lots of reasons why it might be expensive. Number one, that's a... Even though it may seem just, you know, that something that you put on topically on your skin, it may not cost as much. Those, you know, topical agents and eye drops tend to be some of the more expensive medications. Now, there's plenty more than that. You know, there's infusions that cost thousands of dollars and all kinds of things. Right. So a lot of it, um, this is a special class of medications that um, is usually used for atopic dermatitis. But um, it is a little bit more specific. Um, so it's a it's a PDE four inhibitor, and that's just a an inhibitor of a certain pathway in the, that that the skin has that's trying to cut off that that response that might be a um, uh, sort of an allergic type response to something. And if it's if it's not, it probably could be used for a couple of other things, and and not just for atopic dermatitis. But it's a whole lot more specific than, say, putting a steroid cream on there, uh, which would be much cheaper and over the counter. Um, but a lot of these medications, it's how it's the the active ingredient is either hard to make or it's hard to deliver. You know, it has to be put in certain other things to deliver to the skin. Um, and even generic medication sometimes, you know, just because a drug goes off patent and then it gets picked up by the same drug company or another drug company to be a generic medication, 
sometimes those prices don't change much and sometimes they go up a lot and what we've seen particularly during covid with supply chain problems you know it may be very very cheap but made around the world and if there's something that interrupts that supply cycle because we're very dependent now on a lot of these medications coming from all over the place um, then that's going to make the price a lot higher but I, I agree with you. You know, in my opinion, a lot of the prices are, are extremely high. You might want to check with your pharmacist. Sometimes there are um, rebate or reductions in those costs that are outside your insurance that, you know, a good pharmacist will say, hey, you can get this rebate if you do this and you want to pay that much money. Um, right. But, but, you, but go yeah. ahead. Mm-hmm, go ahead. No, that, that, yes, that leads me to my next question. Sure. Okay. There, there, there are uh, extraordinary discount cards available at various pharmacies, but I've been told again and again, because I'm on a Medicare Part D insurance plan, you can't, I can't use them. Uh, okay. And I, I don't, under, I don't understand that either. Why, why not? If so, I were a private insurance carrier, I could get this drug for like fifty dollars. Yeah, sell six hundred. Yeah, but I can't. I can't use uh, any of these pharmacy discount cards. Do you know why? Yeah, it's just part of the discount. I I don't know all the the background reasons why, but for some of those discount cards, if you have that Part D, and and for those of you who may not be familiar with that Part D, Medicare Part D plans are the ones that. Um, are funded through other companies, uh, drug you know drug delivery companies that basically they right. they pay for those medications. But yeah, I'm not aware of the specific reasons why. But I I was aware of that with Medicare Part D. So that is a sort of a lot of them won't won't do that. They don't have the discounts. Whereas if you're on private insurance, they might. The other thing to keep in mind when you re up for your Medicare Part D choice, your plan. You might want to talk to a pharmacist around those times. I would recommend all my patients, particularly if you're on more than about two or three medications, and one of them is one of the more expensive ones, think about talking to a pharmacist once a year before you have to make that decision to change plans um, to see if there are other alternatives that are going to give you a lower copay or keep you out of the donut hole at the end of the year where you're having to pay sort of, you know, catch back up on, on what you, what, what they charge at that point. It is a complicated system that is way, in my opinion, way too complicated. It causes a lot of problems. There's a lot of hoops to jump through. There's a lot of prior authorization sometimes that physicians have to, to, um, you know, fill out and, and justify. And sometimes you have to to try two or three medications. But if, if you get to a dead end with all those, I'd call the dermatologist back and say, hey, this is going to be a lot of money. Um, is there an alternative or something else that I could that I could, you know, take? Even though that's the one thing that they prescribed at that point, sometimes, and this is very common, I'll, I'll have the same kind of, you know, inter, interaction with my patients about other things, say blood pressure, and say, you know what, I really think you should be on this medication. Well, if it's going to cost them an arm and a leg, there's probably two or three different medications that I could have prescribed that would do the exact same thing. So there may be some alternatives here that may be a little bit cheaper than what what she was prescribed, what they were prescribing. Yeah, well, let me ask you that. That may be the issue because the 
uh, the discoloration of the skin is not on the surface. You know, mm-hmm. it's not it's underneath there. Yeah, it's uh, it's in the it's in the dermis. Yeah, and so uh, my assumption is that these ointments are geared to try to penetrate down try to penetrate the epidermis down the dermis and clear this up. Right. But there's no there's no guarantee. Is that is that what's going on here? Is that the yeah, sometimes, the, yeah. particularly in dermatology, short of a of a biopsy, you'll just treat it with something, and if it gets better, then that sort of confirms your diagnosis. But Bill, one one last thing I would say is, you need to if if it's the other thing to do is would be to get a biopsy of that, and they can do a skin biopsy in the office that's very minimally invasive, um, takes one stitch actually to to put it back together. And that would give you more information about what's actually going on, and it would be much more specific. So you might even like say, "Hey, can you do a skin biopsy of this just to confirm the diagnosis before I take this really expensive medication?" All right, this is Southern Remedy, Doctor Jimmy, with you this morning. We got uh, one patient caller on the phone, and we're going to try to squeeze in that call in the next couple of minutes. We have good morning, Craig from Biloxi. Go ahead. Yeah, I was wondering, with the prices of these drugs and stuff, can you get partial prescriptions, or can the pharmacist fill a partial prescription and then refill the rest of it later? Yeah, you mean like, so instead of having like a 30-day supply, you just have like 15 or something like that? Yeah, yeah, because yeah. I've had pills I couldn't eat. I, you know, I mean, I eat two or three of them, and they make me bad, so I can't eat anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's something you can discuss with your pharmacist. Now, they may need to verify, depending on what the medication is and how it's used, they may want to verify that with your physician who prescribed it. But um, generally speaking, they can do that. And if it's a long term medication that you do have to take every day, believe it or not, sometimes getting a 90 day supply uh, is cheaper than, um, you know, getting the just a 30-day supply. So you get a bit of a discount with that. And you don't have to go back to the pharmacist quite as, quite as often. Uh, another thing I'll tell patients, too, particularly with some of our older medications that work perfectly fine, you know, you can get sometimes a, a three-month supply for $12 or less and uh, for the whole three months. And it sometimes on, and this doesn't make sense, but sometimes if you file that on your insurance, it's a higher copay that you have to pay, but it's lower if you just don't put it on insurance and you pay outright. Like $12 would buy that even if you don't have insurance. So there's lots of ways that you can reduce costs or try to reduce costs. Mail order is another one. So if it's a medication that's not going to change, like Express Scripts is one of them, uh, most of the big pharmacies now will give you that option. And if it's something that's not really anticipated to change, you could do that and uh, save some money, too. And they'll mail it right to your to your home. Okay, so I would start by asking my doctor, uh, what can I do to reduce costs? Or, or, yeah, or, or that's, if I wanted to just a yeah. partial uh, prescription. Yeah, talk to your physician, but also talk to your pharmacist. Talk to your pharmacist about ways to do that, too. All right, thank you, Craig. That's all the time we have for today. I want to thank all of our callers for calling in this morning. I had some great discussions. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at UMMC. Southern Remedy is produced by Kevin Farrell, and the podcast producer is Jermaine Flood. Tune in to MPB Think Radio every weekday morning at 11 for the full Southern Remedy lineup. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. 
To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.